0: Do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream, scream for your life! Hey, weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and my guest today is finally ready to dare the most terrible rites and incantations to secure his position here. Welcome, Nicholas Vince. How you doing, mate? i'm doing very well thank you very much
1: i'm wondering what's going to happen to me in the next hour or so after that introduction Well, <laughs> uh, uh,
0: as i always say you know don't worry i don't buy it. but then i might do um <laughs> <laughs> it's well it's it's absolutely lovely to have you on and thanks for doing this uh it's an absolute pleasure that you're here um Yeah, so um, I guess most people will know you um, via your roles in uh, the first two Hellraiser films and things like Nightbreed as well. But you're also a kind of filmmaker, uh, writer, uh, and you've got this whole sort of catalogue of things that you do. So I just wondered if if we could kick off. Can you tell us how you got involved with Clive Barker Uh, and then give us some indication of the other things you do and also uh you're you've been recently promoting the i am monsters thing as well is that is that right
1: yes yes that's all right so okay to take these these in order um how did i meet clive barker and got involved with him i met him at a party uh up in crouch End. uh this was a couple of years after i'd left drama school which is also in crouch End. And I met him at a party. I don't remember the exact details, but I'm pretty—it's most likely that Simon Bamford, who plays Butterball in the Hellraiser movies um, and Onaka in Nightbreed, we were at drama school together. We were in the same year at drama school, and uh, I suspect—and because Simon Clive had seen Simon at drama school performing in King Lear. I think he was playing the fool in King King Lear. And um, Simon was working with Clive, with the dog company, the fringe theatre company they had. Went to a party, met Clive, started chatting and turn, going really, really well with him. And he just asked me if I'd like to come and model for him. Uh, and I did. And I ended up on the um, fronts of the Books of Blood because he was painting the covers to the hardback versions of the Books of Blood. So that's really, yeah, kind of how it how it all began, really. And then to come back, jump to the other end, you know, bring us right up to date, then I Am Monsters is all about me and how I came to play the chatterer, um, which obviously, you know, this is through my friendship with Clive. Um, and, but it talks, the film itself is... It's 70 minutes of me talking about incidents in my life and my love of monsters as a kid, um, you know, from ghost stories and myths and legends and so on, all the way through making films with Clive, but also the times, because I was a gay man in Thatcherite, Britain, Thatcher's Britain, um, and Section 28, uh, Clause 28, which became Section 28. Um, not allowing local authorities to promote homosexuality uh, as a pretended family relationship. Um, so it goes through all those experiences and, and just basically the times I've behaved like a monster. Um, so it's kind of, it's very <laughs> honest, uh, you know, because we all have, let's be honest. We're all, we've all been greedy, selfish, stupid, angry at some time in our lives. And uh, done things we probably regret. So, yeah, and that, that's premiered at uh, Fright Fest at, uh, on the August bank holiday, literally on the August bank holiday, and was very well received, I'm happy to
0: say. Because oh, I, I mean, it's interesting you're saying there about Section 28 and all that, because it is. Um... You know, thankfully, uh, most people are a bit more enlightened now, um, um, even though there's, there's always stuff going on which we, which we need to fight against. But it is it is difficult to kind of place into context just how oppressive it was at that time, in fairly recent history, and, and, and what people were sort of fighting against, really.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's... I look at all the stuff that's happening with trans people and i just think yeah it's the conservative government again um just basically trying to stay in power and win vo- votes by making somebody a scapegoat it's either immigrants or trans people um trying to deny them rights trying to deny them their humanity um wanting them to disappear and not exist and everyone to conform um which of course is and i I use don't use the term fascist lightly i do believe that the tory party is inherently fascist um in their attitudes to people Uh, however they proclaim about freedom etc etc and they're all about small government it's not true they just want everyone to conform so yeah i think it is I, i talk about about this in the film about and give examples of things that were said at the time um so and i think sometimes young people saying oh yeah shut up granddad um it was tough we know that it's you know we're we're out busy enjoying our lives stop trying to whatever it is and i think and i'm good on them and that's what yeah. i hope they should be like but I think it's always good for them to know, to understand, to recognise the early warning signs as to where you know, legislation may be coming in, because it, we we see it happening at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's weird because I remember, you know, back in 2010 when the Tories got back in and um, I remember talking to some younger people then who had not been around, obviously, during the 80s or whatever, and I was just saying... Be careful, man. This this is this is not the way things should be going. You know, this is regressive. You know, and but uh, anyway, <laughs> this is not the politics <laughs> show. This is uh, tea for terror. Um, listen, I, I mean, one of the things I want to ask about Hellraiser before we get into uh, the chosen film is at that stage because now it's an absolute. It's a classic. It is mm. absolutely a classic. And I think everything in there that the Clive Barker was about and what he was trying to do and push against the boundaries and and really do something interesting with British horror. Um, but in terms of the script and what you knew about how, what, you going into that project, how did it make any sense? Did you think it was going to be this? Did you think it was going to be like, what is this, you know?
1: Well, I've known Clive for a good long time and I've been around when the books of blood and I obviously read all the books of blood and had read the hellbound heart as well. Obviously, <laughs> I read the hellbound heart. I thought, oh, there's not really a lot I said about the chatterer in, um, or the, the character that became the chatterer. What's it like in the book? Can I glean anything from the book? And does this mean I can do more things in the film? Um, you know, that purely actor's selfish way of reading things. I, it all made sense. And I think it was very clearly very different from everything else that was happening at the time in terms of, of horror, which is a lot of stalk and slash. Now, nothing against stalk and slash. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is still one of my favorite films. Hmm. Um, and uh, I have huge, huge respect for all the filmmakers involved in that. You know, my line is n- no teenagers were harmed during the moment of Hellraiser Kirsty goes through a tough time but you know she comes through in the end uh, so I think n- did I know that I, you know 37 years later I would be chatting with you about this kind of thing no I had no idea whatsoever but I did know it was different I knew how talented Clive was I mean as I was saying I'd read all the books of blood avidly and all those short stories are genius and there are so many films in there that should be made you know one day i would love to you know um so it's always difficult to tell when you go into a, a project and again look, life was very different then i wasn't aware of the convention circuits and you know the fan bases and the way fans react to these kind of things so mm. at the time yes it all made sense uh, did I have any foresight into the future? None whatsoever. I,
0: I just, yeah, I think the Cenobites. I mean, just, just visually, I think you've got, you've got y- y- your classic Universal monsters. Then you had your '80s run of sort of Freddy and Jason and all that, and they're kind of cemented on people's minds. But I think just in terms of purely disgusting interesting sexual all of this kind of stuff it's absolute genius and and particularly chatterer that's just such a horrible nightmarish creation to to contemplate it's just horrendous but it, it's it's brilliant i, I mean, it must be fantastic to be part of all that
1: well yes it is and thank you um uh... As I explain, I am monsters. A lot of you know what I went through formed the inspiration for Chatterer. So he is obviously very, very close to my heart, and I think it, I've always been fascinated. Over the years, I remember I was in a pub when I was writing comics. This will be about three or four years after Hellraiser was written, probably even five years after Hellraiser was sorry, after Hellraiser was um, screened and being in a pub with a mate of mine and his girlfriend turned up and um ed introduced me and explained who i was and what i'd done she took one look at me and literally ran from the pub and this was the days <laughs> before mobile phones we had no idea where she'd gone she came back 20 minutes later um but whenever though she met me she it was always she was reticent she always stood back and had difficulty talking to me so um you know and enough <laughs> we had um uh, somebody around to look uh, uh, an engineer doing a, a survey in the house yesterday and uh, we'd finished downstairs looked around downstairs and i said um oh if you're going to come upstairs i have to warn you are you okay with horror? Own- movies he said yeah it's fine and then halfway up the study said but there is one movie that really disturbed (laughs) me and that was hellraiser (laughs) (laughs) and he was fine because he's coming into this study with all this stuff around he was fascinated but yeah it, it, it does i think we're very lucky i'm very lucky as an actor to be part of this but also what i again what i'm very grateful is for is that i meet fans who were not born when we made this film um it so far it is, seems to be a kind of timeless thing it's you, you use the word classic so uh yeah it, it's right up at right up so
0: um what was your entry point into the world of horror in terms of the things you were into when you were younger and growing up
1: I mentioned it before is that basically it really did start with myths and legends the greek myths and legends and the monsters Uh, there was a book called the golden treasury of myths and legends um and that was a i remember getting this out of the um local library with my junior reading card and that was you know so that makes me about six seven possibly eight years old you know young um and bringing this thing home and just thinking these are amazing these are absolutely amazing um and then the ghost story collections and horror collections there were the pan book of horrors i've got a couple of those but mostly it was the what it was the collections edited by peter haining um there were a few of them in the library um which I didn't access until I got my adult reading card, which was probably around about 12, 16. No idea how old he was. Um I loved his I loved his collections of short stories. I thought they were amazing. Um read a lot of those. Uh and then it happened that the BBC were showing Marx Brothers films late on Friday nights. Uh and this will be in the 1970s. And We didn't get the radio times in my house so and i was getting to the age where i was also again probably about 16 i was allowed to stay up late um i'm the oldest of three three sons and um watching mark's brothers films and then turned on late night film on friday night turned out to be i guess I, i think it was frankenstein i think it was the universal frankenstein so I we watched some Universal films and that will be Wolfman, it'll be Phantom of the Opera. Um, it won't be the black and white one. It'll be the uh, Claude Rains, yeah, uh, Phantom of the Opera, and then which is still a Universal film. And then I think they must the seventies. It, it'll be too early for. And then we got things like the, um, Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe Vincent Price films um and that was kind of how it well, all happened so
0: um i think we're going to go into our chosen film now so the film we're going to look at today is the Roger Corman directed Edgar Allan Poe adaptation from 1964 the mask of the red death
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> of the Red Death, personalised by the motion picture screen's Prince of Horror, Vincent Price. Then shouldn't you be on your knees to give thanks? No, I beg of you! Mercy, mercy! Lavishly, he plants his corrupting seeds of sin, spreading living terror that not even the unsullied can escape. Ah!
0: So, Nicholas, when was the first time you came across this film?
1: As I say, it would have been as part of that run, um, and I remember just being blown away by. Okay, so we. One of the things that I'd learned from the Universal films was, the monsters are the good guys. The monsters are really the victims in these. They do end up by doing horrible things, but they. Um, I think less so Dracula, perhaps though. Yeah, you, you know. He's cursed. He's cursed to live forever. He's cursed to to live on people's blood. You know, I don't think he necessarily. It's never really explained in the Universal film uh, how this came about, and I don't really ex- think it's explained in the book. From my memory of it, I've not read it in a long time. Um, and then, <clears throat> so the creature, Frank and uh, Carlos' creature, is obviously just a big child um larry talbot in the wolfman as you know becomes a wolf man when he's trying to rescue a woman from a werewolf attack um and so the mask of the red death was the first one that really asked philosophical questions and this is what got me and this is why i chose it um and i'd say it's stronger in the if you look you know, as a film if you're watching it i think it's probably stronger in the first part than it is in the second for this aspect um philosophical questions why does prince prosper and spoilers are going to be inevitable in this conversation I yeah think. yeah um why does he's old enough now yeah, I think, yeah <laughs> I, if you haven't done see it before watching if you stumble across get it watch it the moral dilemmas um, it starts off really early with the moral dilemmas. Prince Prospero, played by Vincent Price, comes into the village where he discovers there's the red, de- the red death, um, and the villagers are all um, not wanting, you know, speaking out against him. Two characters, two male characters in, in particular, and. It's, you know Prospero immediately says, you know, I'm gonna snuff effectively says I'm gonna snuff you out. And they say, No, but we've been told that we're going to be delivered from your tyranny. There's been a prophecy. Uh, and it turns out what the prophet what that means by that is they're all gonna die, but from the red death, the villagers are likely to die. Because he's spoken out, and so this is a young man, and then his potential father-in-law joins him. Um, Prospero says, Right, you're both going to die, and then the daughter. Uh, who's the who's the girlfriend of the young man says no no i beg you spare their lives spare their spare their lives and he says no one of them one of them must die if i have a, a hound that bites my hand um i have the right to kill it it's a very, and this is exactly the same situation you have to choose francesca you have to choose between the two of them um and it's that kind of oh well what would you do in that situation in that horrible situation and then you get the, the uh and th- this is kind of repeated later on when the two men are put in front of prospero and given five knives one of which is poison they have to cut their forearms who's going to um but also there the these talks about terror um the, uh, Pat- the patrick Mcnee character talks about terror and prospero immediately says no you know nothing about this uh you know nothing about terror you know your, your senses are too dull to know and uh, patrick mcgee not McNeigh. Yes, patrick yeah, mcgee yeah. um you know nothing about terror your senses are too dull and then does this beautiful speech as to what terror is you know that in listen they, is that the ticking of a clock or is it the footsteps of an assassin um, and that, and that just I'm getting goosebumps now just as I remember them and it's those great really interesting intell- ideas I always talk about intelligent horror being my favorite kind of horror films as I say I completely appreciate Stalk and Slash Nightmare on Elm on Street I find particularly interesting because it is that thing is you know you can normally escape the baddie by going to sleep but now the baddie's is in your dreams what are you going to do now um and how do you escape somebody who who's haunting your dreams and that's a fascinating idea um so i like those intelligent things because i think this is what horror does best when it's done properly it answers the que- or it attempts to answers or examines the questions about life death and sex um going back to the Cenobites and the sexiness of the Cenobites and Hellraiser. Um so yeah, I think this is what really, really struck me about Mask of the Red Death.
0: I think, yeah, I I I think he I mean what's 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 nice about it, obviously it's it's a a sort of as most Poe adaptations are, they're kind of sort of adaptations because Poe I I think it's great that people take these ideas and put them on screen, but I think Poe belongs on the page really. That that's where Poe belongs in some <laughs> but I, I I and I think what you get with this film, like you do with a lot of film, it, it's kind of an amalgamation of different ideas. So there's two there's two or three Poe stories going into this. You've got yeah. the the hop Toad and all that kind of stuff. Um and and also there are visual and uh and an audio audio sort of nods to to poe as well he talks price talks about the beating heart which is obviously allu- alluding to the the, the uh the, the classic poe story and also there's the clock with the little sort of pendulum yes, which yes. is very much the pit and the pendulum no, you know no. all that kind of so there's all this stuff going into it and i think I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about Roger Corman later, but it's just, um, I think that, you know, because the the, the the normal narrative goes that, you know, by the sort of mid to late 60s, you're starting to get a new kind of horror coming in. And by, especially by the end of the 60s, you're getting, you know, Rosemary's Baby, Night, Night of the Living Dead in terms of American horror. And it, it takes on a, you know, and it almost dates that idea of the velvet cloaks and the capes and they, they suddenly became out of date mm. but really i mean i know that's the kind of revisionist view and i i agree with a lot of that and it had to change but in terms of just pure spectacle and and evil and and that this felt i mean for a start you've got it is that that from that period where most films, if they were made well, looked brilliant. It it oozes colour. It just, it is, I mean, the colour, again, the, the aspects of colour in this film, the, you know, the different rooms that we go through, it's mm. beautifully done. And it, it it feels like the whole set is made of velvet. It is it's just beautifully done. But I think also, in terms of Roger Corman, Roger Corman... So a lot of people will be known as kind of like a schlockmeister. You know, he produced Mm. a lot of schlock films. But actually, the films that he directed, a lot of those, even though a lot of them were very low budget and turned out very quickly, um, it's a mistake to think that he is just pure schlock because if anybody thinks that, then they need to watch this film, um, which I would argue is his absolute best horror film. But mm. also, I think they should also watch from a couple of years earlier, The Intruder, which is a non-horror film, which is now, I mean, now, how how more relevant can you get that The Intruder, that is talking about Trump's America, you know, 60 years before the event. It's an incredible film. Uh, and so I, I think this is just an absolute brilliant example of a master filmmaker at play, but also, there are other people involved, which we'll get, get into later on, I guess. So, I mean, would you would you class it as his best sort of horror film? Do you think?
1: I think so. Yes, because I think a this is one of the, this was the largest budget, I believe, that he had in that series of Poe Corman yeah. uh, Price films, and it was filmed over here, um, yeah. as opposed to in America, and was where I think you got so many English actors involved um like patrick mcgee and um uh nigel green and it you know i think yes in terms of spectacle and the color uh and so on i'm just trying to think intruder is this the william shatner film yes 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 Yes, absolutely and i think he did you know like all those uh, those filmmakers in the late 50s and early 60s there is a uh, de corps, um of y- youth railing against the establishment of the. Uh, I mean, this is where you know you get. Don't forget, he he worked a lot a lot with Jack Nicholson and really helped give Jack Nicholson a career, um, and launch his career and was behind things like Easy Rider, um, uh, as a producer and helped get these things together. And I think he was very socially conscious but he also knew there was an appetite for the people enjoyed gothic horror and i think you you are talking about the end of the gothic horror films you know the Universals, the thing based on the victorian writings as you say into the more modern you know let's bring this let's look at the horrors in things like rosemary's baby right up to date um what's going on i mean i love roger corman i think i love the um the biography how i made a thousand movies in horror, hollywood and never lost a dime uh you know <laughs> it's a powerhouse i think he's only recently stopped making films as a producer yeah. um it's it, 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 sorry I, I i'm wrong he's gotten up he's still a pre-production executive producer upcoming you know previous 512 yeah. <laughs> I mean, Quite so yeah,
0: help. we talk about prolific, but you know, like most people pale when it comes to compare it, comparing themselves to Roger Corman. That's
1: yeah, I think it's a real celebration of Gothic horror, and it, it, you can tell he's got a big studio to work in, rather than the smaller, the smaller set, the smaller claustrophobic sets you get in the earlier films. You know that he has a big studio to work with.
0: Well, I mean, the argument normally goes that, you know, up till the sort of late 60s, most horror films played around with the mm. our fear of death, um, including these films. Um, but after that, with the sort of new wave of horror, which came in the late 60s, early 70s, it could be argued that those films were examining our fear mm. of modern living. You know, Rosemary's baby is, you know, she literally is invaded by something else, another being. And and all of that film being, you know, set in, in an apartment, which is bare when she moves in, representing her womb. And then it's suddenly filled with things and people who are taking over her life. And so all of these films and Night of the Living Dead, you know, whether it was intended or not. You, you, you know, I know Romero said that, that the leading black guy was kind of almost an accident, but I don't care what anybody says. You're putting a black guy as the leading man in a horror film from that yes. era. That is political. Whether you intend yeah. it or not, it's political in that era of what was happening in America at that time. But I do think, I, I, I do think it's a mistake to think that everybody suddenly just decided that they weren't interested in gothic horror uh i think there were there's always an appetite for that and there's there's always uh you know we we will always flock to that because the aesthetic is so brilliant I and mean, it's something and i think the difference is rosemary's baby something like that is talking about our fears of modern life as i said um with something, and it, it's very real. It, it, although, you know, if you remove the fact that it, she, she, she's impregnated by the devil, a lot of what's happening is very real. Um, but there's a lot to be said. You know, people like Dario Argento, Mario Bava, and Roger Corman are presenting us, Then they're, they're not apologetic in presenting us with a fantasy. This is a fantasy. This is dripping oh, yes. with unreality. I'm not trying to tell you know. You can drop things in about real life and and what's happening outside, but in terms of what you see on screen, this is fantasy. You no, know, absolutely not. No, no, what, what
1: strikes me listening to you is the fact that I think around about the same time, a lot of the fear of modern living was being dealt with by science fiction, particularly you know, in terms of the of the bomb, um, and you know, reactor radiation, uh, communists. Alien invaders. Um, I'm speaking very much about an American um, uh, sensibility here, because I mean, if you think if you think about the British horror it, and Hammer, mostly it was kind of gothic. We're, getting, we're talking about Dracula. We're talking about Frankenstein uh, again. Um, Amicus. They take the short stories um again which were written uh, mostly earlier in the century and again it's a kind of a gothic feel to these things these are ghost stories these are classic ghost stories um as, as much as anything else so yeah i think it is interesting this idea of how i think again going back to the idea of intelligent horror it's unless it strikes a chord, in, unless it touches our fears in some ways, it's not scary. You're talking about the fact that it deals with our fear of death, whereas more modern horror deals with the fears of living. Um, or the fears of sexuality, if you look at Videodrome, you look at Cronenberg, and you look at you know, the body, uh, 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 of all that stream of, of horror uh, as well. Um so I think, yes, it is interesting to kind of put it into the context of the time and what was was going on. And obviously, again, one of the reasons for choosing this film was because it became very relevant, you know, a couple of years ago, Mask of the Red Death, which is all about a plague uh, and the way we react to, the, to a plague and how the rich shut themselves in a castle to prevent themselves from the Red, from the red Death and how Prospero won't allow, won't allow a late comer into the castle because he may be infected. And there's no question, he's not going to open the gates. Um, and his response to the man is one of the classic lines in the film, which I always come back to. You know, the... Um, character which turns up late with his wife and he says look look let me in I'll, I, you can have my wife i've i know you've always wanted my wife <laughs> um vincent price just says i've already had that dubious pleasure <laughs> it's just like and when the guy begs you know to be you know begs to be protected from the you know not to let him die from the red death prosper he just signals a guard who shoots him with a uh, a crossbow Uh, hits a guy in the throat and obviously kills him and then you know the last thing he does for the woman doesn't let her and he just throws her a dagger uh, from the battlements
0: I mean that that's an example there's some really nice transition shots in this film and that is one that sticks out he throws the dagger it lands on the floor and then we cut immediately to the other characters yeah.
1: picking up a sword yes.
0: inside it's a really really yeah, nice you say, really it, i nice think it do. really
1: is Corman at the height of his powers in terms of directing because he's got the bigger budget to you know to allow him to play and and indulge himself with these last large scenes Although, and again in a film that is all about color in particular the color red i really wish the costume department were, were more strict uh in their use of use of the yes. color red um, yeah. yes you have the, the red death who is represented by a figure um purely in red but there are you know there are flashes of red elsewhere in the costumes when he said no i beg of you only do not wear the color red, and you just think, yeah, you could have worked a little harder on that guys, just to make sure there was no other red in the, yeah. in the shot, that would have made it amazing,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, I mean, the, the other thing we, we, we can't uh avoid talking about is, hmm. is obviously Vincent Price. What does he mean to you?
1: I, he has always just been my horror icon, um. As I said I really got to know his work through the um Corman price uh Poe films but also things like um the abominable doxa fibes uh is amazing and uh, one of my other really really favorite films is Theatre of blood um oh. just extraordinary I just
0: just do you, do you just, know I, I I can't wait for one of my guests to say, "Can we do *Theater of Blood*? Because I, I, <laughs> fucking love that film so much. <laughs> if,
1: if only for the way poor Eric Sykes dies in that <laughs> film." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I'm allowed to mention that there was talk, there were talks of a remake uh, with Malcolm McDowell at one stage. And I just thought, yeah. Yeah, They Our did Malcolm a stage a play, amazing. didn't they? Yes. Yes, they did. They did do a stage I didn't get to see it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that would be wonderful. So I think, and okay, so what is about Vincent Price? It's the voice. It's the voice of Thriller. Um, uh, it's the fact that he was a Renaissance man. Um, he, you know, he was really into his art. He was really into his cooking. Uh, there were you know, Friends of mine have produced, uh, along with uh, Victoria Price, his daughter, who you know, really works to keep the legend of her father alive. Um, just extraordinary, that, that manner. And things like Dragonwick, you know, completely non-horror films as well, where he just, and Laura, uh, the film Laura, he just brings this amazing presence to everything he he does. Um, I believe he was in the original stage version of the play, which became the film *Gaslight* as well. And I just you know, um, and I just play imagine him playing the husband in that. Just extraordinary, amazingly talented man.
0: I the thing with Vincent Price, there's a few actors that kind of fall into this category, uh, and and it's always the criticism he receives from some quarters is that this idea of well, he was quite hammy and this and and you know he didn't have much range, and I my my response is always, who cares? Why? Why do we need? actors that have got a a vast range that that's one thing i don't want vincent price to be anything other than vincent price and 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 what's wrong with vincent price you know he because there is nuance within that me people tend to think i mean people have kind of gone i always remember Mm -hmm. in the latter days you know you've got um his spitting image puppy you know and those kind of exaggerated Uh, impressions of him, you know, which is, you know, okay, but he's kind of like, but there was much more nuance in that performance than people give him credit for. To me, with Vincent Price, it's the quiet, it's the quietness of that and that voice. Mm. It's, it it was set, you know, uh, arguably, like, possibly, maybe Claude Rains had I don't think anybody's got a distinctive voice as Vincent Price and possibly Claude Rains. It's just there's something magical about it and there is something you know, I, I grew up loving Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was my thing when I was a kid and Vincent Mm -hmm. Price was part and parcel of the Welcome to My Nightmare album. You know, so Vincent Price to me is something I, somebody I absolutely grew up with, from the horror films to Alice Cooper to Thriller, everything. He's been there. Edward Scissorhands, you know, and he's just been there every sort of factor of my life in terms of films, horror, entertainment.
1: Yeah, I know it's, uh, I think it's, oh, Dennis Gifford wrote a book. Well, uh, one thing I must say, Vincent Price always said, thank heavens for (laughs) typecasting because whenever they wanted a tall, slightly sinister European type, they called me Um, and it's just like, this is how um, actors make careers for themselves is by doing this kind of thing. I think um, Dennis Gifford in his book on uh, horror films, um, The Hamlin Book of Horror, mentioned exactly the same phrase, you know, he gave up the Hammy acting when he, he you know, he, he or he drew back from the Hammy acting when he did uh Witchfinder General. Yeah. And that was some of his best work. I would dispute that. Like you say, it's like I don't think he is hamming in this in Mask of the Red Death. I don't think he is. I, he, what makes Prince Prospero so terrifying is he's so reasonable.
0: Yeah.
1: He doesn't I mean, he's got guards around him. He who will do the violence. He orders other people to do violent things. He doesn't pick up. He doesn't attack anybody. Um, he plays with people. He plays with their psychology. Uh, in in fact, it's mentioned in the um, uh, in the film that his uh, his ancestor imprisoned somebody in a yellow room. Uh, for three years and when the man you know the man came out and couldn't look at the sun when he came out and I just think we well, shouldn't look at the sun anyway um it's a bad <laughs> thing to do unless you don't get what you're trying yeah yeah you, like said, that, you know that. if you if the screenwriter had used the phrase couldn't look at a yellow flower that would have been more powerful um but in terms of the performances, I don't find them hammy at all. I just find them riveting, absolutely riveting. Um, he doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't use exaggerated gestures. He doesn't declaim. I mean, if you want to, somebody who is, was real ham and because he came from theatre, and that's Laurence Olivier. And when I say he decla- he can declaim a performance, I remember watching a clip of him at, at the Royal Album Albert Hall, giving a uh, performing a poem for a um, a military thing, and it it was I I suspect it was the Festival of Remembrance, uh, which they have every year in the UK in that in the Albert Hall, and the arms are all over the place, and you think (laughs) yeah because he is he is communicating as a theatre actor to the people in the guards in the Royal Albert Hall. Which and he's doing it without um, mostly without amplification because he's got such an amazing voice, and I remember fully. I remember talking to Clive about this, about not necessarily about Vincent Price, but um, watching eighties TV shows. It's sometimes really difficult because of the style of acting. The acting, you know, it is over the top. You know, the writing is over the top compared to what we're used to these days. But I would, I would I deny that Vincent Price was ever a, a really and he did play very different you know the part he plays in the fall of the house of Usher Frederick Usher he's so quiet he's so controlled he's so yeah fragile you know he can he contains that it, it, that fragility of the, the character, um, the man who can't hear the sound, you know, a, a sound and something like that. I remember Stephen Fry meeting Vincent Price and asking him to uh, say a favourite lines because he's, he's uh, just such a huge fan of uh, Vincent Price. So yeah, I agree with you. I don't think you do want Vincent Price just to be vincent bright but within that he, his range was extraordinary as far as i'm concerned
0: i, mean, uh, I can't you know, imagine
1: him doing kitchen no but he had no i don't imagine him doing the kitchen sink I yeah get
0: yeah, that. yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah but he had he had a sense of humor as well i mean this is the thing that people i mean one of my favorite stories Jeez. is when he was making which finally general with michael reeves you know michael reeves obviously tragically died incredibly young but he was like kind of at the time Mm. he was a hot shot new director and he was having problems with vincent price's style he's always you know can tame it down do this and i think vincent price lost his temper at one point and said young man I've made, you know, God knows how many films, you know, how many films have you made? And Michael Reeves said, well, I've made three so far, but they've all been good. (laughs) And at that, you know, Vincent Price fell about laughing then and they they got on a lot better after that. And I love the fact with Theatre of Blood as well. What people forget is that he was kind of denied a lot of those serious roles because he he got into typecasting and it made him a lot of money. He wasn't. Mm. But with Theatre of Blood, he gets to do those Shakespearean roles that he was kind of denied all his life. He gets snatches of that, and that's, uh, yeah, it's what I mean. I, I, I I'd love, I'd love to have met Vincent Price. I, I think I bet he would have been a sweetheart as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and as his um, daughter reveals during um, uh, Pride Month, you know, he was very definitely bisexual as well. You know, yeah, yeah. In real life, and I think. But, you know that I find almost which is only revealed to me in the last four or five years um but it I think he's just an incredibly talented man he did one man show based on a Grand Po for years and and toured that he was a theater performer as well you know he, he did have a big career outside um uh theater and, and but you know, he knew what his shtick was. I remember I think the quote is like you know, if you're gonna do horror films, at least inject some sort of humor into that as well. Don't be too serious about this stuff. Um and I think, you know, some of the really cheap Corman stuff that he did, like The Raven, um, and you can really see, you know, he had an incense he had a comedian's sense of timing. Um, and it was very clever very clever. Obviously, you're very intelligent, man.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the other things um, about this film that we kind of need to talk about a little bit is obviously the impact of Nicholas Roeg as cinematographer. I mean, that mm. um, you, you know, as much as this is uh, Corman's film, I, the, the 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 influence of Nicholas Roeg is all over this. I mean, you you can see mm. how just You know, Rogue would go on obviously to do, you know, all of those classic, you know, walkabout and uh, don't look now and all these kind of brilliant films. And his best work was placing us to into a kind of dreamlike state and also him messing about Mm. with kind of narrative and time. Um, and you can see, even though obviously this is much more of a follows more classic narrative structure, um, in terms of the visuals, this is. You know, we have an actual dream sequence in the middle, but actually it's kind of surra- the whole thing could be a dream. Really, this is. For, and I think the last sort of the dance scenes as well, it's it's almost like we're watching uh, an opera. You know, the closing moments of an opera. It's all. And I love um you know, moving away from Nicholas Road for a second, it's the sounds as well. It's that kind of the diegetic and non-diegetic sounds. And and it's this, the use of music is interesting because it's, um, we have these people dancing, but they're not dancing to music that would be available at that time. They're dancing mm. to instruments that would, that are modern instruments. So it has mm. this weird sort of meta level. But yeah, in terms of the aesthetic that Nicholas Rogue creates, it takes this film it's a cut above. Absolutely a cut above. You know, whatever you think about Corman, whatever you think about Price, this film looks the business. Mm.
1: Yeah, I absolutely know of course there's a there's a weird um connection to Hellraiser with uh, Nicholas Rogue as well, because his ne- nephew was one of the assistant directors right, then, okay. Um, on, on Hellraiser. And I know, and in fact, Nicholas Rogue used to visit Clive's parents, if I've got this right, because I think um, Clive's told the story of the fact that Clive used to sit, sat on Nicholas Road's knee when he was a kid. <laughs> it, it's weird. Well, well he would have done, really, but... wouldn't
0: he? You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: Um, I like to. You have to double check that. I swear this is the story that Clive told. I think the yes, it looks extraordinary. I'm just, and, it, and it's all those effects that you, you put in. It just looks gorgeous. You know, the, as you, you've mentioned, the colour. It's the movement of the, character, of the camera. Um, I like as well, particularly when you've got these big, vast sets. And um, I'm trying to think of the name of the lens that they're using because it's shot in widescreen and you can see that the um, yes. image is slightly distorted yes. uh, uh, at the edge. And the name of the lens type escapes me entirely. Um, but he, and he obviously really goes w- with that and we just like you know even if you just look at the trailer for mask of the red death where i got playing in out of the corner of my at the moment it's the movement of the camera the camera is like you know except for, except for certain pieces is usually moving and these were big cameras back in those days um you know big film cameras that we're, we're talking about there so yeah i think it's um an amazing job that nicholas Roy, nick Road did, did on this
0: <laughs> I think that the other thing I think is that this is obviously an AIP production and I think that that Mm. what they produced, I think that's, you know, kind of fascinating story in itself in that they really took on the Hollywood system. You know, at that point when they started in the 50s, it was very much Hollywood, this main studio, the golden age was over and the main studios were really, um, they completely lost track television was gaining ground and they most of the hollywood studios had really not cottoned on to the fact you've got these newfangled teenagers that had disposable income so aip or zarkov productions you know they they went well they will have that then and they created all these fantastic films aimed at teenagers to start with but then out of that you get Corman involved and you get these kind of films as well um so i i think you know aip is often seen you know a little bit like vincent price seen as being this kind of throwaway thing and and yeah some of what they produced is very very kind of hokey but you get all this stuff as well and and i don't think you know someone uh, a company like aip is kind of it's absolutely my bag that's the kind of films i want and certainly if i was a teenager in the 50s and early 60s these were the kind of films I'd have been wanting to see I wouldn't have been interested in as much as as an adult I love Doris Day I wouldn't have been that much enamored with going to see a Doris Day film I'd want to see you know I was a teenage werewolf or whatever you know all these Coleman Poe cycle films
1: well, the, I, th- I think the real thing is that Corman's cottoned onto was the fact of the drive in movie. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And, the, you know, a lot of the American International Pictures, AIP, as you uh, mentioned, are basically made for that audience. They're made for a teen audience. They're made for guys and girls so they can snuggle in, you know, in the backseat and, you know, be scared and therefore hold on to each other. Um, and also, I mean, people forget that corman was also re- responsible for the introduction of things of films like rand because he bought japanese films yes. and brought them yeah, over yeah, yeah. to america um and seven samurai um you know he bought these projects and they brought these bought these films and brought them to america um as part of the distribution I, corman understands the business I think this is the real thing. He's like, he knows that filmmaking is a business. He and he was very definitely an independent filmmaker. I love the story that Corman uh was driving to this you know the studio one day and uh passed uh, in, in this is in Hollywood, um past a wildfire or the remains of a wildfire. Um and all this ground that had been burned, and you've got smouldering trees and so on. And the first thing he does is he gets into the office and he phones up um, somebody for a horse and he phones up his actor. And that becomes the opening of the fall of the House of Usher. Yeah. So when you see the character of the horse walking through these um, burned out trees and this desolate landscape, that was because corbin said yep i can use this i this is the way you know and he was constant he's you know he's a true independent filmmaker he just takes advantage of all the opportunities that are presented to him at the time but also uh, we, we wouldn't
0: have a lot of those classic new wave filmmakers without corman because mm-hmm. he he you know he was absolutely they they Trained with Corman, you know they they were given all of these opportunities to make their first directoral debuts with Corman, and I mean, oh yeah, imagine the landscape without Corman. Imagine that those those seventies films, those classic seminal seventies films, wouldn't have existed, arguably, without Corman.
1: Oh yeah, and even through into the into the eighties uh, and beyond, he's always giving people a chance. You know, he's producing and giving people a chance and really, as a producer, uh, as much as a director, I, I'm just trying to think of I've already mentioned Jack Nicholson. Um, and I'm trying to think of the guy from Happy Days who came, has become a director. Um, Ron much. Howard. Ron Howard, yes, Ron Howard. Started his career with, with um, Roger Corman productions um it's it wouldn't be new world at that stage because he sold new world by that stage but um which is why I, I always i love the fact that um hellraiser starts with the new world logo but corman had already sold new world by the yeah, time yeah. the hellraiser <laughs> came around but a lot of the, you know some of the people who worked on no, Razor had a connection to Roger Corman as well. I kind, I kind of like as well. Getting, I know
0: we started off with politics, but um, going back into it, I mm. kind of like how this film is feels slightly political as well. Not in a you know political with a capital P, sort of left or right, but it does, you know, in a little bit, a little bit like the Hammer. Some of those Hammer films were very much. They knew they weren't being political, but they knew their audience, and they knew they had a large Mm. working class audience. And there's a lot about this film, which is about the the you know upper echelons of the the higher society coming to you know coming getting their comeuppance, you know. And I think also with the whole hop toad sort of interlude you know you can look at it it's a very kind of freaks you know the todd browning freaks idea because that you know arguably that film's about class as well it's the little people getting their revenge and i think that you know I, there's a lot of stuff about about this film you could take It's being quite political i think but if you don't want to buy into that it still works as a
1: fantasy adventure yeah horror. it's so it's so clearly it's it's so clearly political um you know the, the opening secret sequ- the opening 10 minutes is all about you know the, ma- the the prince prince prospero coming to get his tax or celebrate the fact that you know he's been starving his villagers through mm. overtaxing them etc um, and this and literally it's you know, one of the characters is saying, Yeah, this is not a celebration. You mean the fact that you've taken all most of our harvest and you're going to leave us to starve over the winter? This is the celebration you want us to invite to invite us to a party. Um when the when the village, I think about halfway through the film, you get about half a dozen villagers who are left going to Prospero's castle, asking to be forgiven um and the character who spoke out at the beginning of the film says, are you insane he's he's not going to forgive you and why are you asking for forgiveness um but it's that whole mentality of you know the lord of the, you know, the lord of the manor uh is is our protector and therefore we have to go and ask forgiveness so that he will come. obviously what prospero does is he orders everyone to be killed Um, except for the child and then the and then the soldier says but they're going to die anyway and just says not the child as if there is some sense of humanity left in this man who has going back to the what i was saying earlier on who's who's basically philosophical stance is if god is good why does he allow such evil in the world as the plague and all the things therefore the god of this world must be satan therefore the only logical thing to do is to worship satan to encourage all his friends to become debauched etc and worship satan um and i love the you know the philosophical thing at the end of the film where he he meets them the the red death um thinking that he's meeting satan i'm not satan i'm deaf there's no bargaining with me. There's no, mm. I don't need to, you can't, you know, there's no worshiping of me. I am deaf. Um I again, I think, you know, this is the thing as a teenager when you're trying to work out the world and so on your interest in spirituality, etc., etc. I think I think well, this is again why the film is so important to me, because it did it does ask all the big philosophical questions of if God is good, why does he allow such evil? um in the world and what is the role of satan in the world and what is the role of death in the world um
0: so um to kind of sum up how would you recommend this film to someone who'd never seen it what is it you would why should they watch this film
1: i think or primarily an example of an intelligent horror film that this is it is a horror film it is clearly a horror film because it deals with the supernatural it deals with death it deals with fear it in very many senses right on the nose i don't think it's a particularly scary film in the same way that nightmare on elm street is um it's very much of its time but look at it watch it for the moral dilemmas that are presented um and for its exploration of fear, its exploration, as we've talked about, of the political aspects uh, of of the world. Look at it as an examination of cruelty as well. Um, He's called Hop Toad in the film, Hop Frog in the original short story. The revenge he takes is horrible. Mm. Um, It's horrible in the original short story as well. illustrations by Arthur Rackham in my collected version, in my collected story. And just look at another, for filmmakers, look at it for what what you can take from a story. As you said, quite rightly, you know, the stories of Edgar Allan Poe should be read. They were intended to be read. They weren't intended to be filmed. But it's really interesting to see what Corman did with all those, um, Poe films that he did, how he took the essence of a story and then explored the things. So I think this, this and again, as a filmmaker, you want to look, watch, look at the cinematography, um, look at the way that the camera moves and the, the, the distortion in the lens and how that is used to dis, to show how weird a thing you are looking at. So I think you can get so much from this film on so many levels, basically.
0: Yeah, it's it's just an absolute joy. I think to watch this film, I I really loved rewatching it again the other day. It's it's brilliant. Mm. It's always been. There's some great those those post cycle films. They're all worth watching. I I, I do look I like Fall of the House of the Usher, but I think this this is his absolute best one out of those, and I think yeah. it's probably his best horror film as well. It it's stunning. It's really yeah. brilliant piece of work yeah um okay, so uh please uh if you're listening to this, then uh like subscribe, comment, do all that stuff, follow us on Facebook, follow us on x um you can listen to your this podcast wherever you download your podcasts. we're all over the blooming place um it just remains for me to say. Thank you to uh, Nicholas Vince for being this. It's been absolutely brilliant to have you on. I'm so I'm so glad you could do this. It's honestly it's a it, thank you, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, Andy, thank you very much indeed for this lovely chat. It's always nice to talk about these things, um, and I, I'd explore all this stuff in so much depth because it's such a it seldom one gets a chance to do this. So thank you very much indeed.
0: Oh, you're welcome, you're welcome. Uh, So remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You're probably dying for a nice cup of tea for terror.
1: And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future.